Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alina cannot be contained today. She's very, very excited. Go on, Alina. Who have we got? Yay! I'm so excited because this is one of my hidden, hidden secrets and I love this subject so much. Like you can't really understand or hear from my voice and I'm excited. But I cannot wait to introduce you to this kick-ass archaeologist. Yes, I said it. Kick-ass archaeologist and Pompeii expert. Pompeii is the more epic bit. The awesome Sophie Hay. She has excavated all around the world in places like Libya and Belize. But she's also done some boring academic jargon, which we're not going to talk about. But she has a great book coming out, which we'll be discussing. Hopefully, we'll be discussing a little bit later. So, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Sophie. Hello, Alex. And hello, Alina. It's very nice to meet you both. Alina, (laughs) you know it's not a secret when you tell everybody on every (laughs) episode that you're obsessed with archaeology and classical history. It's not a secret. secret. Nobody knows. Okay. All right. Well, it's out now. Moving on from the little world that exists inside Alina's head. Sophie, where are you based? How's lockdown? Lockdown is fine. I'm in London. Mm-hmm. Um, I escaped uh, LA a couple of weeks ago. So uh, that was kind of, I'm very glad to be back home. Um, but yeah, no lockdown for me, as I imagine a lot of other people who are freelance people who work at home, <laughs> is completely normal really for me. So day to day is fine. Obviously dread going out shopping. Um, but yeah, no, I did two weeks without leaving the house at all, sort of self-quarantine or whatever. And yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> and, awesome. Yeah. You got any pets to keep you company or anyone else or is it just you? No, just some house plants. <laughs> but and, and the dead yeah. people, obviously. <laughs> obviously the sacks of dead people in my yes. house. Yeah. Which is completely <laughs> not disturbing for Alina or I at all because we both share the same, uh, same, <laughs> same sad, tragic existence. Um, let's get to the dead people. Because yeah. Alina has been collecting questions for you on Pompeii and people just, they erupted like a little volcano on Twitter all of their own oh, full of questions analogy. for you. I know. I, d- I saw that up on the spot as well. Wow. Well done to you. I know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, you can tell it's the, you can tell this is the last recording on a Friday, can't you? Alina, <laughs> give Sophie a question before she wonders why the hell she joined us on this Zoom call. <laughs> I do feel sorry for her a little bit. But anyway, so John Hawke asks, their best theory on eruption date. Why the apparent so many buildings left damaged from the earthquake were not repaired prior to eruption? And go. Oh, right. Okay. Um, Well, it's a good 
question to kick off with because obviously we only have Pompeii because there was uh, an eruption. So um, in terms of how we always think about it, it's like there's a traditional date that we got from Pliny the Younger who wrote letters 25 years after the event. So you've got to kind of imagine he's got a very good memory. <laughs> um, but the fact is we don't have the original letters. Um, we have copies done in the medieval period. And basically when the scribes are kind of transcribing these things, I think when they get to bits that they don't, they can't quite see clearly because, you know, they, they're smudged or whatever, they just kind of make it up. <laughs> and so we have a series of these letters, um, which date the eruption to, at least we have AD 79. So we've got, we've got the year. Uh, the precise date ranges from the 24th of August. It goes, there's one in October, there's a third of December or something. So I think obviously that part was unclear in the, in the, in the copy they were making. Um, and we've just plumped for one copy, which we kind of use as canon. So we plumped for the best, um, copy, which dates it at the 24th of August. Uh, and that's been the traditional lazy way because we haven't bothered looking at the sources. Um, but, uh, as the question suggests, uh, what's the theory? Because in fact, the archaeology, uh, comes to the rescue a little bit here, as it always should with, with written sources, I feel, as an archaeologist. Um, and all I can say is thank God for the pomegranates. Um, if we didn't have the pomegranates, we'd be a bit stuck because pomegranates tend to ripen in sort of Septemberish time. Um, so that's sort of more towards autumn than, than midsummer. And because we've got from places like Pompeii, Herculaneum, Aplantis, or all those kind of Vesuvian sites, we've got evidence of pomegranates that were plucked off the tree, so ripe. Um, so there's no real way that the eruption could have taken place in the middle of August. Um, there's loads of other bits of evidence, um, but none of it is quite as sort of secure, if you like, in my mind, as the pomegranates. Oh, there's the wine. There's the wine. So we oh, know... The wine is always important. Oh, I know. It always comes back to <laughs> The saviour that is the alcohol. Um, so we know that they uh, make wine and they do, they, they take the, the grapes off the vine and stuff in probably sort of October, late September, October time. That's the usual kind of uh, time for the harvest. And in some of the sites, we can see that they've got these huge, so where they press the wine, they have these huge sunken ceramic vessels called dolia. I mean, you can sort of sit a family of four in them. They're that kind of big. Um, and uh, they're, they're found to be full of wine. There's, there's wine sort of residues and stuff all over them. So the fact that they must have done a... Um, uh, a harvest quite just before the eruption also again kind of negates this 24th of August um, date so again I think we're looking at sort of late October now and there's um, people say oh they say things about the clothes that they wear and they're like oh they're very heavy clothes you're like well yeah no shit um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> volcanic material dropping on you <laughs> and you're outside you're not going to be wearing you know your finest linen you're going to be wearing kind of the heaviest clothes you've got to protect you mm. um so the clothes is kind of well yeah you can't kind of say yay or nay on that um and then the last thing that was found or the most recent thing i should say that was found was this um charcoal um writing on the wall um they call it graffiti but it's not technically it's a it's, a, it's just writing on the wall 
um, and it has a date on it. And annoyingly, it doesn't have um, the year. So we know that this person wrote this thing and they mentioned the date of the 17th of October, but they miss out the year. So it could have been, you know, 17th of October, I don't know, 71. <laughs> so we don't, again, there was a lot of hinging on this and everyone got very excited. Um, but it's potentially another thing that could suggest that, you know, it's, it's if someone's writing this and they've got 17th of October, it's not the 24th of August. But we don't know when it was written. Um, and... Uh, I think I think the argument is that it's charcoal, so it might have rubbed off the wall quicker. Um, but in my mind, also, it's survived two thousand years. <laughs> yeah, <So. laughs> there's a slight inconsistency there, isn't there? Yeah. What about this um, bit about the buildings uh, still damaged from? Oh, Earth? right, yeah. Um, so that is uh, that's another good thing because everyone kind of says, but surely, surely, and then you think, well, actually, I, I mean, I lived in Pompeii for four years, solid. And I experienced uh, a lot of earthquakes. So there was one morning when I woke up and I was basically traveling along my, the length of my room in my bed. Um, so this place is prone to earthquakes. So I think just because the sources mentioned one kind of major one that must have done a lot of structural damage um, to sort of the big, the big buildings as well. Um, it doesn't kind of preclude the fact that there are you know, this is a zone where between 62 or 63, again, it's really annoying about Pompeii, I'm just going to dug it, that the two most salient dates that we need, which is the eruption and the earthquake, we have mm. conflicting evidence for. But anyway, so it's either the earthquake happened sort of 16 or 17 years before before the um, eruption. Um, and in fact, but between those years, there's probably huge amounts of other tremors, earthquakes and whatnot that maybe not recorded, but maybe those other sort of the buildings are showing signs of having been um, structurally damaged because of those. And in which case, of course, they're not all repaired straight away. I mean, how many people really repair things straight away? If, you know, if your building is structurally sound and you've got some plaster that fell off, you might not run to do it straight away anyway. This is I, a fair I'm, point. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> saying how lazy I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I can empathise. Um, I think with lockdown, everyone's now repairing all the little things that were broken and whatnot in their house now. So, well, they were until everybody started looking at you like you were Satan's spawn if you went to buy anything in like the supermarket and happened to pick up some wallpaper paste at the same time. <laughs> that's not really? essential, and you're scum. Um, <sighs> this is a bugbear. Um, JP would like to know. Do we know what percentage of the population managed to escape and roughly how many people died? That's really great. That I love this question because we used to get asked this all the time. How many people escaped? I know, like, we, like, we don't know. Um, we have no evidence, I think we used to politely say to people. Um, but in fact, last year, uh, an American chap um, called Stephen Tuck, um, in, he wrote this paper. He's done the most amazing research. Um, and he's basically traced the names of people who appear in Pompeii um, and Herculaneum. And then he's kind of traced them and to see if he can find their names elsewhere. Like, do they do they survive? And I mean, this is a sort of Herculean task to use. Mm. Um, but his results and of course, everything's a bit, you know, shady, shady, because you can't always be sure that, you know, if it's Mr. Jones, you know, how many Joneses are there? 
and who's to say their family didn't live elsewhere already. But he has managed to trace a number of families that have moved um, out of Pompeii, resettled somewhere, uh, and then went on to have kind of families out there and whatnot. Um, so there definitely were survivors who left, um, probably in the earlier stages of the eruption. Um, and the interesting thing is that they don't go very far. So you'd think this sort of a serious thing is erupting. You think you would get away from the giant <laughs> mountain that spits yeah. fire? No, they that just would be my immediate reaction if I saw it going off. Let's go <laughs> live somewhere where we can't see that thing. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It's like, oh, you know, are you tempting fate? But they kind of don't. They, they sort of wander off and they end up in Naples, which, you know, still under that shadow of the volcano. Um, it it blows my to... mind that obviously we have Pompeii and we know how horrible it was when the volcano went off and yet Naples sits right underneath it. And is it not geologically overdue? I know that means like in a a big span of years. Yeah. And it was when I lived there, they kept saying, oh, because it goes every sort of 50 years or so. The last one was during the Second World War, 19 March, 1944. Yeah. And so it's well overdue. Um, But it was interesting when I lived there because people whose livelihoods, who had lived there all their lives, they just, they weren't going to go. They weren't interested in escaping mm. and, and running away if it happens again. And some of the people I know, their parents had lived through the 1944 one. And of course it wasn't, it wasn't quite the Pompeian 79 eruption, but you know, they did have sort of lava creeping down the streets. Yeah. Um, it still wasn't fun, was it? No, exactly. But they are prepared to stay come what may. They're just like, these. you know, this is my life. I I don't want to be taken off to... I think it's Sardinia now. When I lived there, it was Genoa, which was completely crackers to me. Um, and and sort of get, the idea of just getting on a boat, having known that Pliny the Elder got on a boat and ride, <laughs> he sort of rode the seas roughshod because, you know, the, all the material was falling in the sea. I was like, oh, I don't know about getting on a boat. My plan was to get on a motorbike. Uh, with my mate and just go. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to the question. Getting back to the history, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do we know know how many many people actually died in Pompeii then? Uh, No. So we don't even know what the population is. Let's start from the basics. Uh, Estimates go between 10 and 20,000. I think think we're kind of sitting around sort of generally 12,000 people was total population. Um, And in terms of the bodies found so far to date or at least recorded I should say uh, we've only got about um, 1,150 so wow. there's a huge discrepancy between what we know is the population size and what we know uh, in terms of who was found on site and then you have to kind of factor in obviously did the rest all survive and run away? Unlikely so I think we have a little bit of a yeah discrepancy there so i don't think making kind of total numbers or percentages is particularly useful and certainly we haven't even finished excavating pompeii yet so there's a whole third that hasn't been excavated um and also early excavations weren't really terribly interested in finding these bodies they were out for you know the the, the crown jewels as it were they, so that's really well, you know, different times, and now we're all very concerned, and we do, you know, and our technology's changed, so actually, no, you know, the bodies now can tell us so much about the health of the person and, and their diet and all of this. But in, you know, when it started, when they started excavating in the mid uh, 18th century, 
no they didn't <laughs> exactly little did they know uh, so I think you have to blame a bit on the excavation techniques as well and sort of gap in our knowledge what was the name of the guy that uh, did the casting technique I mean he was he he started all that off didn't he well, <laughs> sorry, I'm just just to, throw, just to throw a question in there. No, 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 no. It's it's good. It's good. Um, but it's a little bit of a bugbear for me. Um, so Fiorelli, it's Giuseppe Fiorelli, who was ah, the, the one. Um, uh, director of Pompeii from 1860 to I can't remember when. Early uh, uh, anyway, uh, a good a good length of time. You caught me out. I'm useless at dates, by the way, which is why I like Pompeii, because it's like one cut off date, and then after that, I don't have to care. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Giuseppe Fiorelli comes in as director, and in fact, they're already casting things. This is where it's kind of a bit blurred. Um, he's kind of hailed as this genius who invented the casting technique. Um, but in fact, they've already done casting of wooden items, like doorways and things like that. So basically, anything wood and organic decomposes in the in the ash and you can then pull the plaster in make a cast and then you chip away the ash and you uh, see what you've got but they've done a lot of doors before that so we, you have these really lovely casts of, of doors and you get the wood imprint um but yes he was the technically the first to do a body um and he decided yeah let's but then you know the other side of it is you don't actually know what you're going to get until you've um chipped away the plant, uh, the ash because you're making a cast so anyway he got lucky and he did the bodies um and but some of them don't are like they're just casts there's no bones in them it's very odd there's mm. the, there's a kind of weird technique <laughs> it so, says uh, wikipedia <laughs> says he was there till 1875 thank you but he arrived in 1860 he right? did yeah i mean we've got a question about the bodies We've got a question about the bodies, but I want to jump in with another question before yeah. we get to that one, because like I know everybody wants to know the next the, ne- the answer to the next question because it, it's cool. gone through social media like wildfire. But let's do this one first. Yeah. So Aaron asks, this might seem naive, but how is how is that there are so many people trapped sleeping or doing other sorts of things? Were the ashes lightning fast, and did anybody see the eruption? Right. Okay. Well. um, I, I, I'm not sure that most many people were sleeping. I mean, the, the eruption went on for just under 24 hours. Um, and I know, we know that Pliny did, actually. Pliny the Elder, when he finally got off his, his boat and he ended up uh, in the Stabia. He not the younger. Out, not the younger, because the younger was doing homework, sensibly. had said, yeah, thanks. thanks <laughs> I'd rather not head towards that exploding mountain. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> you go on. I'll just do my homework. <laughs> Sensible chap. Uh, so, you know, Pliny the Elder ended up in Stabiae at his friend's house. And he, and Pliny the Younger reports that he, uh, he took 40 winks, which I was, thought was a, a funny thing to do with an exploding mountain, but still. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. We don't know if we know that they were sleeping or not, but the, the column, the column of the eruption was kind of shooting up at sort of three, whatever it is, 30 kilometers high or whatever. Uh, and it's raining down ash and pumice stones, a little volcanic stones. Um, and I think that, I think people were probably, like, they're just unaware of, of what was going to happen, obviously. So whether they decided we'll sleep through it, I'm not so sure. Is it fumes that's made them pass out? Well, there's, yeah, it's quite hard to know if they, they, I mean, they must, there must have been a mixture of stuff 
kind of falling on them, gases and stuff. But to be fair, I think the, the lethal gases kind of come towards the end. I think at the sort of the first um, sort of 12 hours or whatever, um, I think they've just got various stages of ash falling and, and pumice stone. Uh, so a lot of people are staying inside because uh, sort of self-isolation. There we go. Um, but then many, but then it kind of lulls a little bit. And I think they think, ah, oh, this is all right. So people are wandering in the streets and things like that. And they, I think they all think, oh, well, I think we're going to be okay. And then, and then at six o'clock in the morning, maybe when they were asleep, <laughs> um, they, uh, they then, uh, sort of have the worst bit of the eruption, which is when the column of, of material collapses and basically sends these, um, what they call pyroclastic surges. Um, so uh, they come in waves. I think there's six in total, and they're kind of a pyroclastic surge is essentially a, a really fast-moving, superheated uh, clouds of gas. This is where you get the gas, and where people might have suffocated. Um, um, and it comes down the hillside, sort of around uh, 450 kilometers an hour, and it's super hot. It's between 400 and 300 degrees. Um, so the first few don't actually hit Pompeii, um, and out of the six, I think it's like four, five, and six, uh, sort of smother the city, and, uh, you know, by number six, you, there's no, there's no escape. Um, but I think, yeah. I think the sort of, the, the pose that they all, they, they do look like they've been sleeping, but, you know, maybe they had their, you know, the surges kind of knock people out, you know, just whatever they were doing, it was kind of, um, a, a bit of a surprise, I guess. Uh, Let me um, get hmm. to this question um, yeah. that everybody is so excited about. Uh, I'll just <laughs> word it in the way that yeah. Maria worded it for you. It says, is that yeah. Ash guy found um, having a final moment legitimate? <laughs> What's he doing? Because I don't know anything about this. <laughs> oh, my God, Alex, you don't Why know about this. Exactly <laughs> well done, Maria. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate the question. Um Okay, so it's a, it's a body of a man, uh, and he's sort of prone on his back, um, and his hand, well, his arms are kind of... Um, oh, that kind of okay. moment. I'm with you now. That kind of moment. Oh, my yeah. God, Alex. I can't believe you didn't get that. Hovering over his crotch region. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a really can I just say for like it's a really unfortunate pose. It <laughs> is, a, but it's really exactly. unfortunate that he will forever be known now as the wanky payment. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. So I can I can hold my head high in Pompeii. Um, but no, what it is it is sad because um, it actually I mean it's a perfect example of what happens when you are um, burnt to death. So your muscles can straight down, down again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's called a it's called a pugilistic pose. Mm. Um, and exactly, the intense heat kind of um, contracts the muscles. So he was probably lying flat on the ground, and uh, as the heat hit him, his muscles contracted. So, but yes, poor guy. Um, you know, suffer a hideous death, and then just be known as the wanking Pompeian is kind of unfortunate. I must admit. Oh well, but some people does, will settle for any kind of fame. Well, yes. And yeah, no, when I worked there, you know, people asked me what pose would I assume 
um, should there be an eruption? I was like, oh my god, the one, of, the one of <laughs> running away as fast as possible. Well, exactly, that's <laughs> Superman for me, people. Superman. Yeah. So because I'm like, yes, that woman there, she looked like she was flying away. Yes, yes, I was. <laughs> well, she was on the back of a motorbike. That's where she. Was. Oh yeah, that would be. Yeah, no, that's a better one. That's a better one. Right, yeah, listen, we, we've got. Yeah. One sentence, because if you don't say the correct answer, we are no longer friends. Oh God! And the correct answer should be the house of the fawn. <laughs> you're you're going to say no, and I'm going to be heartbroken. So in one sentence, oh, Meredith God. asks, "What is your favourite house?" No. <laughs> no. I'm sorry, mine's mine's no. the one with the Alexander mosaic. That's, That's the, the house of the fawn. Oh, you guys, was this like conspiracy? Um, no, I mean it's big and. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't Tell us yours, flow. Sophie. You're the expert. It does not get my juices flowing. Um, okay, well for me, I, I'm split in so many ways because there are so many fantastic houses in Pompeii. Um, but I think, I think, if I think, <laughs> if I think, um, I think my favourite is going to be um, the house of Julia Felix or Felix, however you'd like to say it. Um, and uh, my explanation, because everyone's going, who she, where she, uh, she, I mean, I just, I like the house because it gives us kind of, I don't know, like an insight into the owner so much. And she's kind of quite a badass woman. And I kind of really respect her. So she's probably unmarried. We don't know. Um, but she owns probably one of the biggest houses or estates in Pompeii. And she's got a big sign up on the side of her house that is advertising, like, for renting accommodation and things. So you think, oh, she's kind of like, you know, and it's probably um, painted on the side of her house at a moment after the earthquake. So she might have gone through some kind of economic problems or whatever, and she's having to raise money. So I quite like her because she's a woman advertising because usually property is owned by men so there's a reason why she owns this property so I really like her for that she's like an entrepreneur now in my head Mm. Um, and she's renting out stuff to get money so she's kind of pulling herself up by the bootstraps and saying you know I've got to make some money how do I do it I rent out apartments on my second floor because she's got so much space uh, and some shops um and oh she's got a bath uh a huge bath complex which is quite rare to have in your house in Pompeii sort of you know on this scale and in in the notice on the wall the advert saying uh come and rent my stuff she also says I've got this bath complex but it's for elegant people you know so it's kind of like keep the riffraff out I don't want I don't want dirty smelly people really I just want <laughs> I want the people I quite like her <laughs> no well exactly but then she's got this she's got this sort of amazing kind of two twofold life so she's got this life of of trying to sort of get money and whatnot and and she oh she owns a bar and a little restaurant um uh so she's making money but then the back of her house she's really posh like she has a garden that is sort of half half of her property is her garden basically uh and she's got this water feature that's all sort of you know clad in marble and you can imagine you know the water running through it and whatever in the sunshine it's all lovely she's got a dining room with with three couches uh where she would eat but it's got a water feature it's like a sort of waterfall in the back or something the room is decorated in blue uh with nile scenes so really exotic and then at the front of the building she's got a sort of bar that's sort of spooning out food and drink to people 
Um, but I, I just, I really like her because she's always seemed to be quite grounded. So in her house, apart from these exotic, sort of, sort of exotic paintings, she's got a fresco of bread and eggs and a tea towel. And I just think, okay, yeah, she kind of knows what, she knows what, you know, the mundane things in life too. Um, but the other cool thing she has are these, uh, frescoes of the forum in Pompeii. So we can actually recognize it as the forum in Pompeii, which is like having a photograph of the forum. It's, it's amazing. Um, and again, it's all these mundane things happening in the forum, like people selling pots and pans to, to clients. Um, there's a, there seems to be some kind of school lesson going on. Someone's being flogged. Um, but you think, well, why has a woman got these kind of very mundane daily scenes in a house? But yet she's got, you know, the Nile scenes and all this kind of weird, really exotic sort of fantasy landscapes. And I just think you get quite a nice insight into her that she's kind of one foot rich, whatever, pompous. And then the other side is quite grounded and, and cool and entrepreneurial. And I think oh, she I just like got, her. Yeah, so I think her house is very interesting because it tells such a deep story. Whereas <clears throat> House of the Fawn, you walk in and go, "Yeah, big." Or I do. <laughs> she, uh, she's certainly <laughs> Alina's just gone now. <laughs> she's Don't, just gone don't worry yeah. about Alina. <laughs> we'll swap her later. Uh, Tigger <laughs> would like to know. Uh, Tigger says, "My question." Can the style slash hand of a particular artist be detected from all the artwork uncovered over the ages or use of particular pigments by possibly one artist? I think what they want to know is can you attribute certain houses to, to one decorator, which would be cool. Yeah, no, yeah. That's, a, that's a great question. Um, and it's, it's, it's so frustrating in the sense that why didn't they sign their art? I mean, how selfish are they? I know. Um, <laughs> it's like we have what you know, you have one job. Well, to paint and then just pop your name on the bottom, go on. Um, but they don't. Um but 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 there are there are sort of studies in the sort of similarity between paintings and um one by Lawrence Richardson, I think is the is the kind of um uh the the canon on this, the sort of uh the one big work that's gone into this and I know for, I know his work because in one of the houses I was studying myself my PhD had um uh, a wall painting and it was attributed to someone called the Boscoriale painter now Boscoriale is is a little um uh village or settlement uh just to the north of Pompeii uh, so kind of further up the slopes of Vesuvius and so he he may have been he may have been working mainly there uh hence his name um but his kind of it's a bit like hitchcock in a film you know you always look out for hitchcock um and see where he is um this boscoriali painter would usually include like a shadowy traveler type figure in his works um so that was kind of his signature if you like that's the closest we get to a signature is he has this little figure so whatever he's painting whether it's a landscape with temples or um i don't know what else trees and a mountain or whatever there's always this little shadowy figure so there are there are schools or and workshops i should say that kind of you can identify vaguely a style um but really the names of them no we don't have names unfortunately and what was the second part oh about the pigments about the pigments mm. um again i don't think we can attribute certain pigments to certain artists but we can certainly attribute them to certain workshops not everybody 
could have access to some of these pigments because some of them are really kind of luxurious. The, the blue, for instance, which is what I was droning on about in Julia Felix's house, is, is very rare. It's very expensive. So it's not used much. It comes from lapis lazuli, the stone, which comes from kind of Egypt and stuff. So you have to be quite well off to kind of import these things. Whereas Pompeian red, uh, as the name suggests, is really common because you can source it locally it's made from the local stone so i think the pigments thing is is a bit harder but there must have been some differentiation between um uh, uh who who could attain what but I, I kind of in my weird brain i quite like the idea that, that some painters were like good at some things but really shit at others uh so there's the um <laughs> venus in a shell um in one of the houses and it's this great painting and it's got mars at one end and then venus is reclining in this shell and it's sort of you know botticelli eat your heart out but if you look at her leg one of her legs is kind of looks like she's double jointed or triple jointed or something it's really bad so it's kind of like oh he was really good at plants and birds and whatnot but he really failed on the anatomy <laughs> lesson and yeah her leg looks really weird so if you google Venus in a shell in Pompeii, you'll, you'll see exactly what I mean. It's sort of twisted round and whatnot. So I quite like the idea that, that if you find another one where the leg is really weird, it could be the same guy. <laughs> or woman. Who knows? Who knows? I'm not going to be sexist over it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Paints what? Sticking with the whole idea of frescoes. Yes. Um, sorry, artwork for people that don't know what yeah. a fresco is. <clears throat> um, Peronella actually asks, let's get a little bit controversial here. Are you ready? Are you ready for the controversial oh, question? God. Yes. I thought the that was the wacky question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we oh, haven't no, even no, started something. yet. <laughs> no, we're going to get really controversial here. So, okay. the new frescoes are nowadays left where they are, where they're found, aren't they? Is it appropriate for their conservation? Oh, controversial. Yes. And I'm a complete fence sitter on this. I, oh, half of me like, just loves seeing and thinks it's really important to see the, the fresco in context. So, you know, where it was found, in what room, what wall, the, uh, you know, the feeling of, of what it does in that space and how, how it works in that space and how it was probably intended to work and all the rest of it. And I think you only get that when you see it on site in situ still on the wall but obviously uh the other half of me goes take them off the wall because they're all going to get destroyed and put them in a museum and save them um 
but I just yeah it's it's hard and I think in the past there was there was no question they just you know ripped them off the walls and took them to the museum and you go to the museum of Naples now and it is an absolute joy because you wander around and you see amazing painting after amazing painting after amazing painting but then you think, well, what, how did they choose what was coming off, <clears throat> excuse me, what was coming off the walls? Um, not everything was kind of coming off the walls. So we've lost a lot because it was left on site. So then you think, well, there we go. There's your kind of answer. If you want it to be preserved, you might have to take it off the wall, but then you lose the context. So I'm kind of hoping that in sort of more sort of recent times that this conservation element is, is, is much more seriously taken and also the understanding of, of context. So I'm sure what they're doing now in the new region five excavations, so where they found the Leda and the Swan and um, all those lovely mosaics as well, because obviously mosaics uh, are fragile as well as wall paintings. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming that they are using techniques and really kind of thinking through what kind of protection they can give them, sort of coverings and things. Because in the past, they would put a little bit of glass over it and that just got dirty and then the rain spattered into it. And then you, A, you can't see anything and B, the thing is getting destroyed. Um, so I think it's a healthy balance between the two. I think if, if they can stay on site under a, under a good, you know, proper protection, proper ceiling, then leave them. If they're more kind of liable for being sort of exposed to the elements, then I, I agree, you know, we wouldn't know half of what we knew about the frescoes in Pompeii had they not been taken off to a museum. But good um, question. It's, it's really, it's, I'm a fence sitter. It's like half and half. <laughs> it sounds like the safest place to be on that. Um, on something else that survives, um, hmm. Stripes would like to know, how on earth did the papyri... Is that how you say it? In the Villas Library in Herculaneum, not get destroyed. What free ah. conditions preserved them in their original shape rather than burning them to ash? Ah, well, that's that's also good. I get asked this a lot because they're like, why aren't there loads of papyri in Pompeii? Didn't they know how to write? And I'm like, mm, I think they did know how to write. It's this. It's a it's a really good question because it highlights um, the difference between the uh the effects of the eruption on these two different sites so herculaneum is slightly closer to naples and slightly kind of closer to vesuvius in in, in essence um and the two positions of pompeii and herculaneum they 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 kind of dictated how how the eruption was going to happen so the wind was blowing kind of over pompeii so it blew all of this ash and pumice and herculaneum didn't get any of any pumice at all um, and in fact, it was probably thinking it was fine and was kind of, you know, jeering at their neighbours going, ha ha, bad luck. Um, but they did suddenly just get the pyroclastic surges, um, probably before Pompeii even knew pyroclastic surges were heading towards it. So in fact, Herculaneum was wiped out um, before Pompeii, um, probably about one-ish in the morning, I think. Um, but it's the, the it's those pyroclastic surges that the intense heat just carbonised um, wood, paper, um, and things like that, instead of um, them sort of slowly being able to disintegrate, if you like. It was just instant. It's like, you know, throwing wood in a hot fire. You get you get charcoal. Um, uh, so it's the carbonisation process that basically saved these papyri. Um, and they're really tightly wrapped as well. So they're, they're kind of the scroll element. They're really tightly wrapped. So they are essentially like sort of they're acting like blocks of wood if you like um which is why you get them in herculaneum and you don't get 
Um, we don't get any papyri uh, at all in Pompeii. So they survived through the sort of the difference in the type of eruption. So that's it. Um, but well, yeah, there's, uh, but we do have, we do have writing in Pompeii. We have them on, um, we have them on wax tablets. So there's a banker, uh, in Pompeii, uh, called Caecilius. And he's very famous because of the Cambridge Latin course. So I imagine most people know Caecilius <laughs> I do, yes. He had a chest. Uh, he probably actually died in the earthquake. So we, but we have a chest, a wooden chest of his. Um, and though that we didn't get the chest, we actually did get what was inside it. Um, obviously the chest kind of protected its contents. Um, but we have, we don't have the wax, obviously that melted. Um, but we have the wood that the wax was, was pressed onto in a kind of form of a book. Um, and, uh, we have the scratchings left by the, um, stylus, the sort of the, the pen. I can say stylus now because everyone uses them on their tablets. Um, uh, and so we have, we do have writing and documents from Pompeii, but no papyri. But yeah, no, good question, because that yeah, does distinguish between the two types of the eruption. Speaking about writing, and I yeah. know everybody's going to want to know this, because... Oh, Mary Beard got this one as well, didn't she? Exactly. Oh, oh no. One, yeah, oh, who's going to be better, Mary or Sophie? Oh, no, well, I it think... It depends if Sophie goes for Mary. all out smart. <laughs> Come oh, on, right. Sophie, you can yeah. smart let's do this. <laughs> so the question comes from Gunter. Excellent, yeah. What what is the funniest or most interesting graffiti discovered oh, okay. in Pompeii? <laughs> I, Come I on, Gunter. The, the scope of this question, excellent. Well, Mary will probably win because she probably knows it a lot better than I do. Um, but I mean, Mary went with the fuchuoing. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I, get, I just, I mean, what I should say to start with is I do like graffiti in Pompeii because it is this huge unedited voice of the masses. And you, you have no control about what people are writing. Um, so it's not like an inscription where, you know, it's very prescribed. It's, it's people just saying oh, what the hell they like. Um, and I guess, I guess the funniest for me really, because it is snigger worthy, are the ones in the brothel. Um, so, you know, here I fuck lots of girls. I mean, you know, someone took time out of their day to write that in a brothel, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But you're thinking, well, it's not that impressive because if it was here, you paid for it. <laughs> well exactly um but there's another one that i think I, I really like uh which is kind of just you know someone just not liking somebody else um kios i think his name is or chios or however you pronounce it he just says uh or he writes um i hope your piles um play up again and become sore uh so that they smart more than they smarted before <laughs> <laughs> Wishing something very nice on someone he obviously doesn't like, but it's just oh, so you don't get graffiti like that anymore. No, it is. It's kind of. I love how specific it is. He's, he's and shaming, and also <laughs> very funny. <laughs> I hope your piles start acting up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't <laughs> mean it. I didn't mean it. I don't have piles, but I, I, it's the thought that counts, I guess. Uh, yeah, moving yeah, swiftly I love- on. 
<laughs> Where do we go after piles? <laughs> yeah, well, Joanne wants to know, and I, I quite know, like this what question. What did Mary say? What did, what, what, what did Mary say? Uh, Mary did say about the I, I fuck you owed lots of girls here, but she had another one, oh, but really? I forget what it was. Oh, um, yeah. That was only after we drew the smut out of her. She had a respectable okay. answer before that, but I can't remember Excellent. what it was. Um, well, I'm glad you guys chose one in that way. Yeah. It's about 200 podcast recordings ago for us, so my mind is a blank. Um, Joanne would like to know, is there any evidence of looting during or post-eruption? Aha, nice question. Um, yes, is the answer. Excellent. <laughs> the answer. Yes, moving on. Uh, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question because obviously we have a lot of time between eruption and, you know, the rediscovery of Pompeii. Um, so, yes, we do. Um, there's a there's um potential i mean it's very hard to date because when you excavate in pompeii from the top downwards you do come across tunneling and holes but it's quite hard to date these tunnels and holes because unless they've dropped something like a you know a medieval coin or a bit of pottery that really kind of says well how did that get here unless somebody from you know the 13th century or something was was tunneling around here so they're quite hard to date but there are kind of little snatches of maybe this was done in antiquity so probably not you know during the eruption i think people what they've done is they've moved a lot of their property uh property their sort of possessions if you like uh they've gathered them and put them in a corner of a room so thinking when we come back we know exactly where all our kind of gold and silverware are and things like that so so people have kind of moved things around in their house and the intention of coming back whether they did immediately or not is a different question but there's this um uh sort of there's this uh, kind of graffito on a wall which reads domus pertusa uh, which translates as tunneled house and it's kind of in the thinking that maybe when people in antiquity were coming back to, to kind of maybe loot or maybe find their own stuff. But in this case, it looks like looting. It looks like they're saying, you know, we've checked that house out. Don't, you know, don't bother coming back and looking at it. You know, we've, we, we've, we've ransacked it already. It's been tunneled. It's been emptied of all its, you know, good stuff. So there's a, there's one kind of the <clears throat> one example that may be sort of very much in antiquity and soon after the eruption, somebody coming back um, to to loot a property. Um, and there's a there's a another famous one which is the house of the Menander, which has been kind of I think misunderstood um, because there's a group of skeletons found at the back of the house near the servants' quarters, um, and uh, with them there is a uh, a Roman lamp um and two pickaxes i think and so it's kind of are these people looters have they come back into the house uh after the eruption obviously you know very soon after because they're they're wielding you know objects of that period um or is it people actually just trying to scrape their way out of the house during the eruption and they just failed um, I think the latter, personally, I think that they are the, the group of slaves within the house. Um, they're trying to sort of cut their way out and they've come across a wall and they can't sort of scrape at it. You know, they've, they've, they've tunneled enough, but they can't get through the wall. Um, and the other evidence in this house <clears throat> suggests, in fact, that, that, the, that the slaves uh, stayed put loyally, um, stupidly but loyally, 
um, because the the main slave, the sort of the the procurator, I think they call him, um, he's found lying on his bed in the little sort of room in his little bedroom, which is sort of by one of the entrances to the house. Um, kind of, you know, he's protecting the house to the last minute. <laughs> um, so there's a chance that the slaves were kind of still in the house and that maybe the the, the sort of the rich occupants had maybe uh, had made scarpered or were not there even at the time of the eruption, but that the slaves were there. And then we get later on, obviously, we get um, a lot more tunnelling um, and signs. And then in the Bourbon period, Obviously, they're they're tunneling rather than excavating at that point, which is why there's always a bit of a confusion of whose whose tunnels are whose. Um, but there certainly is there is evidence of of infiltration back into back into Pompeii. So in antiquity and and more recently, that would be my answer. Let's um let's get into um a little bit of rewriting history. Okay, <laughs> we've had quite a lot of that recently. Um, not from us though, not from us, just so everybody okay. knows. This is not a question from our Alex, it is a question from Alex, but not our Alex. Okay. Um, is I there... This <laughs> is intelligence who have come out of me. <laughs> lies, Alex, lies, you're very intelligent. So, is there any discovery in Pompeii that has caused history to be rewritten? For example, something that turned out to be unique for Pompeii and not a representative for general history? Oh, wow. Oh, that's a good question. Well done, Alex. Whichever Alex it is. <laughs> Not me. All right, I'm blaming it if it's good. It was me. <laughs> it was you. Well done, <laughs> yeah. Alex. Um, that's, that's really hard I mean, for me. I think there's probably all the Pompeianists out there going, well, obviously this. And I'm like, oh, I can't actually think. Um, that's, oh, yeah. That, yeah, maybe come back to me on that one. Um, no, I think, ooh, uh, I guess, I guess there are things in Pompeii that, Probably not. I wouldn't say unique. I mean, this is me speaking, not not the intelligent people who know more than me. But I say that they're not unique to Pompeii, but they're they're, they're kind of quite rare as a, an occurrence. So that yes, if we if we'd found Pompeii and, and just said, oh, all Roman towns have this, um, we'd be very wrong. And the the, the thing I'm thinking of <clears throat> is the um, the stepping stones in the street. So these massive blocks that sit uh, in the middle of the road and they're like sort of zebra they look like zebra crossings but in three dimensions so you kind of jump from the pavement onto the stone onto another stone and then uh back onto the pavement um and i think you know it that they're such a feature of pompeii and then you walk around and i've seen a lot of roman places around the empire uh and they're really they, they don't really occur anywhere else apart from a few a handful i would say i think that's the best way of saying it, a handful of sites um, have evidence of these of these amazing stepping stones um, and I think in Pompeii it kind of it works really well which again kind of some sort of puts the point that the, all Roman towns are slightly different anyway and, and to, to think that there's a blueprint for how how towns should be and what things should look like slightly out out of kilt but um, so Pompeii when it when it rains in Pompeii the streets just become like rivers um, most people visit in the summer, so they would not know about this. Um, but believe me, when you work there all year round, you see the seasons. Because um, there's there's no real drainage going on in like underground drainage um, going on in Pompeii, and it's all left to the streets. And I think in, in, in ancient Pompeii, it would have been exactly the same. They would have it's a kind of way of cleaning the streets too. Um, and in fact, they even had water towers. Um, 
with open tops and they would let them overflow so that the water just ran down the street and, and it was a way of cleaning it. But at the same time, you then don't want to jump off a pavement into a road that is like a river. <laughs> so uh, these amazing stepping stones kind of help people to 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 wheedle their way around Pompeii uh, without getting their feet too wet. Um, but yeah, I think that would be one of the things I can think of off the top of my head. And now I'm, I, yeah, I think that would be that would be the one that yes, sort of rewrites a little bit because nowhere else has really got them. But I'm sure That's- there's better answers. Let's stick with that. We'll stick with that answer for now. But yeah, <laughs> I'm going to um, I'm going to just do what I do best, basically, and and take yeah. it back down another level. Uh, what is this about a secret room in or a little room in a Naples museum that is full of penis? I have no idea what you're talking about. Next, <laughs> no, no, no. This is the best part of the museum. I'll tell you right now. It's the best part of the museum. And I absolutely, I, I love it. I think it's great. Um, and you can find some very, very, very interesting artifacts <laughs> in this dark room. In this dark room. Uh, well, the dark room with the interesting artifacts, it started out, um, it's now called the secret cabinet, I think. Um, but it actually started out pretty much on day one of excavations and I'm very proud to say and this is back in um, well the excavation I'm talking about 1755 so excavations started in 1748 in Pompeii by 1755 they had reached the house of my favourite woman Julia Felix and they found this table it's a very nice metal table uh, with three legs tripod table uh, with, a, with three men um, sort of holding up and supporting the the tabletop uh what they also found was that the three men had enormous giant penises sticking out um and the people excavating were kind of horrified i think is is the way to look at it that that they'd found this like absolutely blatantly sexual object of men three men with with penises sticking out holding up a table and so they carted it off and it was one of the first artifacts to be carted off um, <clears throat> and at the time it was being carted off to um to the, the royal palaces so um they would just have a little room in their in their palace with all these dirty objects um but then they sort of got more and more horrified because they saw that like penises were blooming everywhere really and they pervaded <laughs> all sort of manner of of objects throughout society i mean it wasn't like the rich people had penises and the poor people didn't everyone had penises they were hanging off the walls they were uh in in lamps they decorated wall paintings and they basically they just stripped everything excuse the word stripped did um and they (laughs) they put it in this in these little in this little sort of side room in the in the palace but by the mid-19th century the sort of prudishness had, had continued and the, the object, there were so many of these objects, they had to move all these rude objects from the palace um, near Portici, which is right by Herculaneum. Uh, and they moved it into the sort of the basement of, of Naples Museum. Um, so because they needed to expand. Um, and this, this museum um, was called the sort of Museum of Obscene Objects at one point. The, the, my favourite is probably... The cabinet of private objects. <laughs> Not quite sure <laughs> what that, that relates to. Um, but then it was called, uh, the pornographic collection as well. 
Um, and basically it was hidden away from everyone because um, you weren't allowed to see it because it was just nudity beyond belief. And then you've got things like wind chimes, which, you know, perfectly normal, but then you take a closer look and you see that the bells are hanging off a little satire who has a massive erect penis and he happens to be sitting on an erect penis with wings which has its own penis and it's just <laughs> levels of, of phallus that you just yeah you don't get in our society and so I think everyone was so super shocked that that the Romans kind of embraced this um, that yeah it was hidden away and in fact it was kind of hidden away sort of even in by the 1990s it was still not on display um, it was still kind of hidden away, and as as a man, you could you could ask to go and see it. So you could ask to go and see it, even when it was in the palace in Portici. Women, absolutely no way were they going to go and see it. Um, but you had to get permission to go and have a look. And there's one guy, um, uh, Mr. Mr. Brook, I think his name is, and he he went to see it in the palace in Portici, and I think he was so shocked by what he saw. He he described seeing this statue of. Um, Pan, who's, uh, you know, half goat, making love to uh, a nanny goat. And it's that famous um, statue. It, it, you know, it looks quite tender, let's say. It doesn't quite look like a rape, but it looks it looks quite tender. Both seem to be, you know, um, enjoying it. Um, but he saw this and described it later as, as being made of bronze. And it's not, it's made of marble. So obviously he was kind of so kind of overwhelmed by the idea that this statue existed. He couldn't even see which material it was made of. Um, but yeah, so there's, there's a, there's a lot of sniggering. It's probably the happiest room in the museum because everyone goes in sort of straight faced and then not, they don't leave like that. And I think the Romans, I think we have to appreciate that the Romans also laughed at these things. I mean, there is a meaning behind it all. I should, I should kind of come back to, you know, a little sense of this that there is, they, they treated, um, these objects as, um, warding against evil, so they're they're apotropaic, it's called, and they're they're um, Pliny describes that um, the there's a sort of embodiment of the divine phallus that you know you could kind of worship if you like, um, called the fasciculus, which is interestingly um, here take note um, is where we get the word fascinate from. Um, but it is the fasciculus was basically the the embodiment of the divine phallus. Um, so uh, this was then a sort of cure for the evil eye. So it warded off evil. So the Romans used it in their wind chimes, in their frescoes. Uh, Priapus, obviously, uh, number one. Number I do one. Love, I do love him. Massive phallic man. Especially on the house, on the front of the house of the Betty. Exactly. I, well, I yeah. love that painting. That is, and watching people's reaction as they walk <laughs> like, oh my god, and with a huge penis. I'm just like, maybe guilty on. of taking slightly quite a few pictures of that because I was so confused by it. Exactly. So people arrive with a straight face and they leave sort of sniggering. Well, I think exactly you cannot have had that image in the Roman period without knowing that the Romans are also sniggering a bit too. I mean, it is still funny it's just that they were using it in in slightly different ways but i think they, they did find it funny but you do find all these penises uh you find them carved in the walls of pompeii and houses uh they go above doors they're often in kind of liminal spaces so yeah doorways uh crossroads as well kind of bringing luck and you know you don't die on the crossroad because you're hit by a you know 
a mule out of control or whatever. Um, but they're always, you know, you go through a space to another space, but you take luck with you. So they have these huge erect penises that just stuck out above your front door. I mean, massive. They, they've got some in the museum, in the, in the secret cabinet. This is like that cave in Thailand that I've been to. Have you heard of it? <laughs> you tell, no. <laughs> no, there is a cave, and I think for similar... Um, cultural reasons. It's full of just every shape, size, form of, of dildo going, um, or, or like the sculptures of erect penises. Um, and I, I can't honestly remember the logic behind it, but I don't think it's that far removed from what you're talking about. No, good. Excellent. <laughs> well, exactly. So there's, there's a kind of, there's the, there's the sort of, you know, the, the explanation of why they're there. But actually, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of people who sort of say, you know, he's got a, a tiny penis or he's got a big penis. So there's, it's kind of, it is in, it is in humour as well. I mean, it is a kind of a put down or a, you know, an insult. So they, they're not, they're not shy. <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> that's the takeaway from this. They're not shy. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there is an element of, you know, how many, how many penises can we get on a wind chime? That's quite hilarious. As well as lucky us. <laughs> I think we should try this. We need to try this out. Mate, I know. Friend. I've got a friend who's a smithy. We'll get on it. I can't believe in the gift shop in Naples that they don't have these wind chimes on sale. They would fly off the shelves. I mean, insane. But yeah, if you've got a mate who I'm putting an order in. <laughs> Done. One. Alex, do you want one? Oh, why not? Just the look <laughs> on my mum's face. Um, we have got one more. Um, question haven't we from charles who asked what over sexualized artifacts were hidden yeah. away from various excavations any signs of uh, male prostitutes okay well we've kind of we have kind of covered the, mm. the, the everything anything with a penis on it kind of went which it's also to kind of say that it does seem like a very kind of patriarchal society that the penis is used as the lucky sort of talisman if you like there are no vaginas there are no boobs of women used as kind of objects so it kind of does you know it does it does hint at the patriarchal society of, of the romans yeah. um but yeah basically yeah anything anything that was deemed um uh, not not to be seen because it was rude actually the, going back to the priapus one just to kind of really flip around it in a circle um i found a picture in a book uh of the priapus um fresco in the 1960s um, where you think, oh, well, you know, 1960s, everything's kind of liberal, free and easy, and everyone's doing whatever. Uh, but it's not. It's, it's in a, it's got a little cupboard. It's in its own little cupboard. Um, and if you're a man, you could ask the guard to kind of open the cupboard so that you could see it. Um, but women were not allowed to see it unless they bribed the guards and stuff. But this was still happening in the 1960s. So I, I find it hilarious, really. And in fact, the, the, the secret cabinet really only opened to the public in 2000. Um, that's when they re-established it. And now you think that, you know, the front cover of every newspaper, whatever, six months ago, had a picture of Leda being raped by the swan on the front cover. And, you know, there was no holes barred. So we've gone from hiding it away behind cupboards and whatever to sticking it on the front page of a newspaper. So, yeah, we've changed. Um, I feel we cannot yeah. top massive porn collections um in this interview i i think we have we've well and truly outdone ourselves this time alina um well 
Okay. Definitely can't put this one out on a Sunday. Uh, Sophie, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. I don't know how many times I said the word penis. I feel like I've been sponsored by. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Alina's been dying to get you on here, um, but she completely set you up with the uh, the penis. I, I, <laughs> yes, thanks, appreciate it. But you know, you're very you all learn something when you use the word fascinate from now on. You have to think about it twice. And to be honest, I don't think I'm getting the Im- image of all of those penises out of my head for quite some time. <laughs> Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Emma Butcher about, okay, get this, some literary history for you, the Brontes, the Napoleonic Wars, and how they influenced their famous writing. Um, it's really fascinating. Uh, we really enjoyed doing that one. Um, and there's also a cameo appearance from Pudge the Hamster as well. Uh, don't forget that you can become a patron now of History Hack um, and ensure that we can keep going after the coronavirus crisis has passed. You can donate as little as a dollar a month at www.historyhack.podbean.com. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 